What's going on, everybody? Leo Cannell here with today's Seven Figures Club podcast. Today, my friends, we've got an amazing guest for you. We've got my friend, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and expert at so many ways to create multiple streams of income. We've got McKay Vals on the Seven Figures Club podcast. And today we're gonna delve into some very fascinating topics. He is only 32 years old and he and his wife, Cammie, have built an empire. They built up a business, were able to have an exit. They built a lifestyle uh, investor dream where they now live in Costa Rica, where they surf you know, the awesome waves of Costa Rica. They've got their family there. They travel around the world and they've done it in such a smart, entrepreneurial, passive income, multiple streams of income type way. So we are super excited to have him today. You're gonna to wanna to take some notes and you're gonna have a lot of amazing aha moments. So make sure you listen in. McKay, welcome to the podcast. Ah. There are over 32 million businesses in the US and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Awesome. Thank you, Leo. So excited to be here and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we got the opportunity to do this. We tried to do it once before and it didn't work out. And uh, yeah, super stoked to be here. We did, and, and we're super blessed to have you. We were trying to do this a few months ago, but you guys were busy making that uh, move to Costa Rica and taking advantage of uh, a lot of different things that you guys wanted to do and creating a lifestyle and, and really a lot of amazing learning experiences for your kids. And, and uh, you've got the, the soccer team down there in Costa Rica. So just so you guys, audience uh, has a little better understanding. So. Uh, McKay's son Colin and my son Marcus uh, were on the same premier soccer team and so for the last few years we've gone to tournaments and, and uh, been all in with soccer. It's an annual thing literally year-round and so got to know him and the amazing thing that I think a lot of people didn't know about you for several years you were uh, a first responder. You were literally serving the community as a first responder. Sometimes you were doing it in communities far away and I didn't even realize this whole time you had this massive empire and company that you guys had built, and yet you still just wanted to give. What, tell me a little bit about that. That's, that's amazing. Well, I mean, for the past, for the past 15 years, my, my wife and I, we started with, with nothing. We got married and, and started uh, very low income, not a lot of money in savings. And we, all, we just worked regular jobs. So I was in the military. My wife was a dispatcher for our local 911 service. Um, and we weren't making a ton of money. And those were just our, our regular jobs. And the real estates and all the investments, everything was just on the side. And so for the past 15 years, I, I never left that. I was in the military, went from full-time active duty to part-time. And then when I was part-time, I always stayed uh, with a job. I always had a full-time job as a, as a paramedic uh, working on an ambulance and so I'd go work my regular shift and and then on my days off and nights, weekends, sometimes at the fire department I was uh, building this business and this empire and we tried to live off all of our income my wife and I made and then all the money from the business and investments we just kept doubling down and doubling down year after year after year. 
Well, awesome. Well, hey, thanks for serving. First off, uh, I didn't even. I, I knew you had uh, served in the military, so that's that's unbelievable. So the other thing is, like, a, a lot of people feel like, oh, I have to go to college and get this training, which, by the way, everything you've done really isn't available and, and up uh, to be taught in college. Yeah. So I guess my first question is, and, and if you're listening, hopefully you're realizing, like, this is possible for anybody. You know, McKay and Cammy were working regular jobs, and yet they had this side hustle, they had this dream, and I think they were really intentional with how they did it. How did you learn or get started? Uh, my dad my dad had a few rental properties growing up, and so I remember as a kid going to those rental properties and cleaning them, and, and it just, oh, some of the tenants would just leave horrific messes. Um, and so, and that stuck with me. And my dad, my dad was an extremely frugal person and he owned uh, and ran a successful company. Um, he still does, he's still working. He sh- should have retired years ago, um, but he just loves the grind and he loves his business and growing it. Um, and is very entrepreneurial and, and you know, has a, has a decent net, net worth and high income. But yet if he sees a aluminum can on the side of the road, he'll pick it up. And I'll take it home and I'll put it in his bag. And once a year, he'll take it and go turn those cans in for money. Just because he loves the game of entrepreneurship so much. And so I, I think I got that from him. So I, I, the first thing I'm going to say is you want to find a mentor. And yeah. there are mentors everywhere. Sometimes you don't even find someone that you can talk to. Sometimes it's just someone with an online course. But for McKay, he had a mentor and his father, which which is awesome. And so rental properties, different things, entrepreneurship. And I guess where I want us to go with this is let's talk about your upbringing. A dad like that who's an entrepreneur, who's a real estate investor, what type of values and principles did he instill in you that I am absolutely positive have translated into enormous success in your life? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're they're good and bad. He for sure. He, my dad had an awesome, awesome work ethic, and um, you know, he taught me the value of of the dollar, right? And we lived a very meager lifestyle growing up. Even when his business in my in my teenage years started to become more successful, for years his business wasn't successful, and he just grinded and grinded and grinded. Uh, and when it started to become more successful, he was still very, very frugal, and right, and then took that money into putting it back into the business and growing the business uh, and not spending it on a bunch of flashy things. Um, and, and then the, the reverse side of that, I learned a lot of great principles from my dad, but the reverse side of that and, and one of the main reasons why at 32, you know, my wife and I pulled the plug on doubling down and growing our business is my dad missed a lot, right? So there was a lot of soccer games or a lot of opportunities um, vacations or things like that or or time together that that I wish I would have had more of and he was a great dad and he coached soccer and he was there and everything but he was also working so hard that I wish I would have had a little bit more time with him that at 32 um, you know Cammy and I my wife said okay we've hit this this point and we're comfortable with this dollar amount that we reached and these multiple streams of income, now our focus shifted from from trying to earn another buck to now I want a few more minutes with my kids and now I want a few more minutes with my wife and that family time and you know those experiences and building those relationships. 
Amen. When you're old and on your deathbed, you know, those are the things you'll regret. You'll regret yes. the business you didn't start, but you also regret the business that consumed every minute of your life Absolutely. and took time away from your family and experiences. And especially those are the things that kids remember, right? And so you think back, oh, I wish, you know, I'd been able to go on more vacations with my dad or spend yeah. more time here and there. And, and that's what people, I think, have realized over the last couple of years with the pandemic is what's really important at the end of the day. Yeah, it's important to be an entrepreneur and, and, and join the Seven Figures Club, and that's the purpose of this podcast. But once you do that, you know, what, what about a Seven Figures family? What are you yeah. doing to create the dream life that you want with your family? And it can't be working 80 hours a week every week for the rest of your life while all of a sudden your kids are 25 and 30 years old and you can't get that time yeah. back. No, I agree. So. And, and we did that though. You know, we did, I did, I, I worked a full-time job and then on my days off, nights, weekends, uh, for years, for 13 years, uh, my wife and I did those 80-hour weeks. And when it wasn't fun and it wasn't, and it wasn't, we weren't excited to do it and my wife and I were bickering back and forth, right? It's hard to own a business with your spouse. Oh, yeah. Um, and those, those times it got hard, you know, we, we pushed through and persevered. And we, too, our kids during those years, for sure, we weren't as emotionally available as we should have been or spent enough time with them as we should have. Uh, so it did, it took those, you know, we really grew our business for about 13 years. Um, but now, you know, those 13 years gave us this opportunity for freedom now. So, you know, there's that give and take is when do you want to sacrifice and, and when do you call it enough versus, you know, when do you want to have that either that travel time or alone time or more time with your family. Well said. So thinking about some of your first uh, real estate purchases, and when we think of you know real estate investing, a lot of people think about doing a fix and flip, yeah. or maybe they think about buying a, a four unit property and, and hoping to make some monthly cash flow. What were some of your early real estate investments like, and, and what were some of your takeaways and lessons from those? Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, uh, right after high school, uh, I graduated in 2007, and 2007 I graduated and immediately went into the Marine Corps. Yeah. And this this was at a time when both Iraq and Afghanistan were full bore, right? They had the troop surge, there was a lot of troops in both countries at the time. Yeah. So I immediately went to boot camp, uh, my follow-on infantry training, and then 18, 19 years old, I was on my first deployment to Iraq. You know, I was just a kid. Uh, my first deployment, I was 13 months over in Iraq. Um, which, which was good and bad. You know, there's some things, you know, that 18, 19 year old kids uh, shouldn't have to do in combat. Um, and, and, but also when I got home, opened the door for us to go and buy that first property, right? When we got home, you know, you don't make a lot of money in the military, but when you go on these deployments, you have no expenses and it's usually tax-free, and then you can get some, some follow-on, some hazard duty pay, imminent danger pay, stuff like that. So 18, 19-year-old kid coming home with forty dollars or $50,000 in the bank, you know, and I look at all my friends who went to Iraq and Afghanistan, and they immediately came home and were out buying Audis and Xboxes and going to the bar and everything. And I took everything I made, and I went and bought uh, my first rental. I just used that as my down payment. This was 2009-ish, right? I was 19 years old, bought my first rental property, 2009. So the market had started to crash, yeah. but it had not bottomed out yet. No, definitely not. So I, I bought it, 
And six months later, I was $60,000 upside down. And I thought, this is it, great, I'm going bankrupt. This was my first investment, this is horrible. Why did I do this, such a dumb decision. Um, and the biggest thing that I did was just not sell, right? I was able to at least cover my expenses with rental income and some of my savings um, to at least ride out that storm for that, that first you know few years until I at least broke even again. And it was years until I was at least equity positive, um, which was stressful because I had no money. Everything that I just made was into that first property and, I, and it just, tanked um so that and that first one was uh, just a simple small four bedroom unit uh down in provo yeah. and i just rented to to college students yeah and uh yeah that was the first one but i'd say the first lesson in that is and people in, in the fix and flip lifestyle and, yeah. and all your instagram real estate investment heroes who are always you know presenting a certain uh, life uh, yes, you can make a lot of money on flips, but what you can't control is what the market does, 100%. right? You can do your research and get in the right location. So the number one thing I, I think lesson that you're sharing with us is make sure you've done your research and that worst case scenario, you can always rent that property out and cover the payments. One of the mistakes I made early on in real estate investing is I was doing those fix and flips at the exact mm. same time you were doing this. And when the market crashed, they were such expensive properties that I had no way yeah. to cover the, the expenses on the property renting it out. And so that's that's a big lesson. You wanna stick in, in, in maybe markets under half a million or less, especially when you're getting started, to where worst case scenario, you know you've got a rent payment that can cover those expenses. And if the market crashes, at least you can cover your rent. There's some tax write-offs. So, and you didn't panic. I mean, you were certainly concerned. Yeah. But you didn't panic, you didn't sell, because you knew you the odds were good, you could cover your expenses, and eventually, what happens? Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, as the mar the market started to turn, and as the market started to turn, that's that's when my wife and I were dating, right? 2010, 2011 time period. Uh, my wife and I uh, get engaged. We plan a big wedding. Eight months out, we're super excited. Life is good, and then I get a phone call, and they said, "Hey, pack your bags. You're going to Afghanistan in oh, a, in a month." And I said, "All right, here we go again." Um, so, so I, I, how many months was it? That one was 13 months 13. too. So I, you know, Cammy and I discussed what do we do? She took our wedding and planned an entire wedding in three weeks. Oh my gosh. And it was beautiful. She did an amazing wow. job. Uh, three weeks we got married. We went down to La Jolla in California got in the ocean for a few days, enjoyed a few days, uh, together. And then, you know, she came and, and flew home to Utah and I flew to Afghanistan for 13 months. So our first year of marriage together was less than 10 days. We spent less than 10 days together our first year of marriage. That is unbelievable. The sacrifice for our country yeah. and that you and Cammy made as a brand new married couple is, almost makes me cry right yeah. now. Because yeah. it's so difficult, I can't imagine how hard that must have been. So you, you guys got through that. You're amazing people. Got through that. And and she... Uh, but, but I gotta, we got to yeah. remind everybody, you guys were super frugal and smart. 
because because you're so right like everyone thinks oh you've got to be making so much money to be a, a successful investor no you just don't waste money on things that well, don't make you money 100%. and and the guys that he's working with come home and they blow it on stuff that doesn't matter on cars that lose value yeah. instead you put it in a property and right then and there you'd already set up a smart way of living and cammy's obviously really yes. good at it too because sometimes you get married and and my wife is awesome actually better at uh being smart with you know not being frivolous with money than i am but it's so important that your partner or spouse is on the same page with how you spend money yeah no and 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 my wife cammy's very frugal um and sh and she is the reason we were able to take our business to the level that we did because i i'm really good at having a vision and working hard and seeing the big picture of everything I'm really bad at details. I'm really, I'm, she, she's I'm the operation. She's the operation. Okay. She's good at spreadsheets and, and organization and doing the small details day in and day out. And man, you asked me to send an email and I'll forget it eight minutes later. So, but we got home or I got home from Afghanistan and uh, when I should back up one second, when we got married, Cami had owned a condo. Okay. So she was she was a 911 dispatcher, um, and she had gone out and you know just used the FHA loan three percent down, and gone out and bought herself a little teeny three bedroom thousand square foot condo. So when we got married, right off the bat we were now at two properties, and and then everything that uh, Cami made covered all of our expenses. She you know we had we had old beater cars. Um, we didn't spend, you know, we didn't eat out a lot. We didn't do any frivolous spending that was unnecessary. And then everything that I made in Afghanistan, we just, just doubled down on saving and investing it. And then once I got home from Afghanistan, from, you know, a few dollars Cami had saved to everything I made in Afghanistan, we went out and that year, this was 2000, I was in Afghanistan, 2011, 2012. And so in 2012, we came home, market had started to correct, and we went and bought two more properties with the money I made in Afghanistan. So now we're, gosh, I don't know, 22, 23 years old, and, and we have four properties. And those next two, were they single families as well? Those, those were also four bedroom okay. townhomes in, yeah. in Provo, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then are you, is the strategy to rent out maybe to a lot of students and kind of student area? That, that was our initial plan was yeah. to go strictly students just because the per room rents were much higher than we could rent, uh, you know, rent entire units to. Um, and so for, you know, for the first few years, that was the goal. And then, then we started to branch out and look at different markets. And in some markets, single family made sense. Some market multifamily made sense. Right. And others, you know, we step, we still, in our portfolio today, we still have uh, quite a few student or individual room rentals mixed in with other, other properties as well. So a big lesson that McKay's sharing right there is find a way to be creative to increase your monthly cash flow. If yeah. you just buy a regular condo or single family and you just put it on the market to rent it, you may, my uh, desk is going up and down there, you mm -hmm. may earn a little bit of money, but it might be pretty limited. So you yeah. found an, uh, a more creative way if you are renting to students in an area where there's university or college, because you can rent out each room, your total rent amount is much higher than it would be if you rented it out to a family. 
So that is an ingenious strategy right there. Um, a similar strategy I've seen some success with has been with uh, if you can find properties in the right area for Airbnb or, or Verbo, uh, like we just grabbed one uh, in Orlando, and those are areas where you can make really strong returns because the nightly rates are way more than you would ever make, you know, running the property out on a monthly basis to a family. So, amazing lesson there. So now you're up to four yeah. four units. What's the next step to build? And then this is the company you built and and sold too. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I was I was so we were at four units. Cammy was still working her job as a dispatcher. I had started working, you know, as an EMT and then follow on as a paramedic um, in college, getting my degree, and then and then really for the next for the next eight ish to ten years. For the next eight to 10 years, all we did was every two years, we doubled our portfolio. So we took- That's unbelievable. So we took no profits yeah. from the business. And so we would let the market go up, let our tenants pay down the mortgage, yeah. take our extra cash flow, put it back into the mortgage, yeah. and then go from four properties to eight properties, right? Use, using that 1031 exchange. Yes. And then eight to 16, then 16 to 30. And then once, once I was about 25, 26 years old, and, and at this point, still working at the fire department, still working, you know, making $18 an hour with, net, at this point, a net worth, you know, between one and 1.5 million, still driving a 10-year-old Mazda car with 100,000 miles on it. Then people started to come to me and say, hey, how did you do this? Right, how, how are you 25 years old and you own 20 rental properties? So, so at that point, that's when I started saying, okay, maybe, maybe we should branch out and, and start a company around this. So then we got our real estate licenses. Um, I went from a real estate agent to a real estate broker, got my brokerage license. We opened a real estate brokerage. We had real estate agents working underneath us. We branched off and started a property management company. And so, so really from, you know, from there, 2013 to 2018, we dived into real estate sales and I would be at the fire department on the phone, knocking down real estate deals. And, and a, I, I was very honest with people. I worked hard. I returned phone calls and I treated people right. And then people were gravitated towards me because of what, what Cammy and I had created. And so for four or five years, we just just crushed it. It's real estate agents. I mean, I think on average during those those four or five years, at any given time, I had between forty and sixty properties under contract with a with a full time assistant working those deals. Um, and then a lot of our and we and we would go out and we'd help people say, hey, we'll just hold your hand. We'll help you build your real estate empire you use us as your real estate agent and then we'll give you a massive deal on the back end for property management so then we'd get them into our property management funnel give them a, a deal right a break on their real estate management fees for the first year or two and then then man that's that's when things really really blew up is when is when you know our income grew exponentially and again we didn't go out and buy fancy cars. We didn't go out and buy, buy unnecessary things. We we took that income when our when our you know we're making 
forty to sixty thousand dollars a year as a paramedic to now you're making three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year as a real estate agent. We took all that money and then doubled down on real estate and now syndications and debt. And so then we started creating multiple funnels of this passive income. So guys, a lot to unpack there. First thing, let's talk about some of the terms that he's dropping there. 1031 exchange is that awesome uh, you know, tax uh, uh, law where you can basically sell a property and instead of taking all those profits and paying taxes on them, now you can reinvest it in a similar property. And then what's the time period? Is it about six months that you have? So you have, you have 45 days to identify a yeah. property and then you have 180 days to close okay. on that property. Okay, so for about a month and a half to identify and then six months to close on it. And then you can do that over and over again. And that was super important, I think, in your strategy. Instead yeah. of giving Uncle Sam the money, which we, we don't know what Uncle Sam's going to do with it. He might not always make the greatest choices. But you made great choices, reinvested it in more properties, and continued to double your portfolio every two years. And then the thing that was really smart is, okay, we're becoming experts at real estate investment. Well, a lot of other people wanted to follow that path. And so it sounds like that became kind of your the client you could help were exactly. additional real estate investors and so then you, then they became real estate agents brokers and guys everybody can become a real estate agent I mean it's usually a, there's a test or two you can get that license a little background check and away you go and now you know as a realtor you can make really strong commissions especially if you're a successful real estate investor yeah. and then now instead of you know, you know, giving away that three to six percent commission. Now you're earning it on your own properties and being able to help a lot of other people buy and sell properties as well. So, and now, you, what got you guys started in building a property management company? Well, the, the property management company came just out of necessity. Is yeah. these clients would come to us and say, "Help us build a real estate portfolio," but I don't want to answer the phone call at night. And we we also saw the writing on the wall that um, that. A, we were, we were getting a little burned out, you know, 80 hours a week, every single week, day in, day out, year after year. Um, the, the stress, the amount of work, the lack of time with our family was starting to wear on us, 2017, 2018. So we also knew a real estate brokerage as a business is really hard to sell. It's really yeah. hard to put a valuation yes. on that because it's so relationship-based um, and it's, it's hard to get a, a valuation for that. How many clients are gonna stick around? What are sales gonna be? Sales are so up and down. So, so we, we then, we actually started to tap the brake a little bit on so much sales and, and marketing. And then 2018 really started to dive headfirst into growing a property management business with the end goal of this is a very easy business that we can throw a price tag on and sell as an exit strategy. Um, and we had the clients, we had the properties, we had the knowledge. So then it was just, it was as simple as hiring a team, going out and forming the business. And then, uh, yeah, it, it was awesome. And we had, you know, those first few employees, I apologize to any of them if they were ever listening. It was a little hard. We had never really had a team and, and full-time employees before. and we was rough in the beginning, but once we worked out the kinks um, and when we exited the company, the most amazing staff and amazing employees and we treated them well and we tried to pay them well 
and and they really were the ones who grew our business right we were the face of it and i talked to clients and everything but our employees doing the day-to-day back-end stuff that made you know us as the owners look good but i wasn't answering phone calls i wasn't going and unclogging toilets at two o'clock in the morning um it was our maintenance team and and our staff uh that that really kind of drove it home for us Unbelievable stuff, guys. The first thing I'd point out with that is when you're building a business, whether it's real estate or whatever, you know, you want to be able to do two things. You want to be able to earn, you know, a lot of money, which you can do as a realtor with some commissions, but it's all dependent upon you. And what makes something valuable in terms of selling a business is monthly cash flow. That's what the sellable asset is. So if you have a business where you just can make some money here and there, okay, great. But if you can have a subscription-based business, if you kind of have a business that earns monthly cash flow no matter what, and it's not dependent on you doing all the work, that's what's gonna be much more valuable to sell. So you guys had this great idea. Let's build a property management company. Now we're building additional monthly cash flow and then you can actually sell that business. Now the big problem a lot of people run into is, well, I know I can trust myself to do the work. What was that process like and how did you guys teach you know, and find great uh, people to build this team for your property managers? Yeah, I mean, well, we, we went through we went through a couple not great team members, and and part of that was our fault. Our our systems in the beginning were really poor, like it was it was rough. If I would have been one of my early employees, I would have said this guy has no idea what he's doing. He's not organized. Um, so it was it was hard in the beginning. But once we actually got systems in place, we got standard operating procedures. We had things written down. Um, we had ways to handle issues and it was clear cut for the employees. Um, you know, then, then, it was, then it was the fact of more just finding the right fit. I can teach anybody real estate. I can't teach you to be a good person. I can't, I can't teach you to be honest and hardworking and show up on time. So, you know, we went out and, and more than an awesome resume is, is we looked for good people. And, and we hired some phenomenal people and, and, and we really had a, a phenomenal manager who came on with us for, for the last four years we owned the company and it was actually her and her husband who bought the company from us. And so, A, we tried to get as organized as possible. And then B, uh, you know, have you, have you read that book, Extreme Ownership? Oh, that's a great book. Jocko Willing. Great book. So I tried to adopt that mindset is everything is my fault. Yes. If an employee makes a mistake, it's my fault. And so I went into it with that attitude. And there was a lot of mistakes made that some that cost me, you know, a little bit of money, some that cost me a lot of money. But no matter what an employee did, it was always my fault. And I would always take on that burden and I would always try and fix it and, and take the responsibility off of them. Because you know they would never they would never do it on purpose. It was never negligent, or they were trying to hurt the company. And so, so a once I adopted that mindset of everything is my fault, and then b don't micromanage people. I gave them the the runway to grow and build, and then I always tried to sit down with them every you know three ish months and just say how can I help you? What what how? you don't want to work at a property management company the rest of your life. How can I help you grow whatever aspect of life you want to grow? 
And some of my employees did that. Some of my employees went out and said, oh, hey, I want to go get my real estate license. I want to become an investor. I want to own rental properties. And I said, great, let's do it. I'll help you. And some of our employees did that. And now they own, you know, two or three rental properties and are killing it. And other of my employees said, nope, I want to show up every day. I want to, I want to do my eight-ish hours, whatever that is. I want to go home and I want a paycheck every two weeks. And I said, great, if that's what you want, I'm fully supportive on that. And if you want more, I'll help you. So it was, it was different, you know, but I honestly, um, I honestly think what it came down to is like, I cared deeply about each one of my employees and I wanted the best for them. And I wanted to do whatever I could to help them. And, uh, and in turn, man, they worked hard for me and they grew our business to a, to a level that I never could have done it by myself. Unbelievable. Again, a lot to unpack there, guys. He just dropped so many value bombs. First thing I would say is you've got to get the right people on the bus with your company, right? If you have the wrong people, which sometimes you have the wrong people and sometimes it's your fault too, and that's huge too, being accountable as the business owner, but you've got to have the right people who share your values and principles. If they don't share the work ethic, if they don't treat tenants and your customers and your clients right, then they're, they're not a good fit, right? So you've got to find the right people and there needs to be values and principles and it seems like you guys really um, you know, built those out. And then the second part is the mechanical. All right, if this problem happens, what's our policy? What's our standard operating procedure? You hear about SOPs, that's what it stands for, standard operating procedure. When this problem arises, this is what we do. So it's kind of twofold finding someone with the right values and principles that shares what's important to you. And then number two, now what, what are the mechanics? What are they supposed to do when this problem occurs, when this, this, this uh, concern comes up? How do they resolve these problems? And then the third one on there that was absolutely huge is leaders. And how did you guys know that you found leaders and what did you do to help them lead? I, I think, you know, being a leader and and I would revert that back to a lot of the stuff I learned in the Marine Corps and as a young NCO and especially you know you're you're a 22 year old kid and you're getting put in charge of other human beings lives in combat there's there's no better leadership school than that right there so so I learned a ton of, of leading others in the Marine Corps and and I had a ton of leaders above me that I learned a lot from, good and bad, you know? And I probably learned more from the bad ones than I did some of the good ones. And so, so I just remember, I remember that feeling of being micromanaged. I remember that feeling of not being trusted. I remember that feeling of, if, am I gonna do this project? Is it gonna be good enough for that person? Um, and so every, Every time I, you, you know, I'd have those leadership experiences, good and bad, I'd just try and put them in my little toolbox and build my leadership you know, repertoire and then, and then you know, take that and then develop, develop those leaders or employees underneath me. And then also, there was things my employees were doing that I was taking from too. They would, they would say something or suggest something and I would, I would you know, have a totally different thought process <clears throat> or thinking and and I would have to have the humility to say no you're right like your your way is way better, better than better my way, way. Yeah. yeah and I've been doing this for 10 years and you've been doing this for six months so that's embarrassing that that you have a better 
you know, procedure for this, but let's do it. And then I would empower them. And then, and then that would hopefully give them the courage to, when something was going on, they'd, they'd speak up and say, hey, maybe we should do it this way. And sometimes I'd say, yeah, let's do it. That's actually a really good idea. And other times I'd be like, ah, oh, no, let's, let's do it this way. Because sometimes with that lack of experience, they didn't understand some of the other things that were going on, right? They didn't understand fair housing laws or city zoning laws or restrictions. And so they say, let's do this. And I said, well, actually, we can't do it that way. It's a good idea, but we can't. Sometimes they'd have suggestions. I'd say, yeah, that's a rock star idea. Let's do it. And then I think that would empower them to be better leaders. Well said. So now you're building this valuable asset, this property management company, along with the real estate company. So now how, how do you sell a business? How, what's the process like for someone who's trying to build something up valuable? Yeah. And, and then how do you sell it? Well, I think, um, it, you know, one, valuing a company, right? You should get some outside help from that. I had never yep. put a, a valuation on a company before. I don't know. And, and you always get emotional, right? It was your oh, baby. Yeah. You created it. It's worth, you know, you, you're going to throw out whatever astronomical number you believe your business is worth in your head because it's yours. So, you know, we got some outside help and some attorneys and some merger and acquisition guys um, that were super, super helpful for us. <clears throat> and then, you know, we started to have the conversation with, with our employees that, hey, guys, we, we love you. We love this business, but, but we have further goals in life. And our further goals don't include running this business anymore. And and we were totally upfront and honest with them. There was there was never a bombshell drop of oh, owners are gone, new new owners are in, and I hope I get to keep my job. Um, and so I reached out to several people in our space, and and we had three or four really interested. You know, these were colleagues, some who owned property management businesses, some that are interested in getting into the space. All successful, all with net worth easily enough to have purchased the business, but. Um, our, our first option is, is we went to the manager, our, our day-to-day girl, um, who basically had run our day-to-day options for the four previous years and told them, like, hey, like, we're at this point because of you. Like, we had the vision and quest and everything, but, but the day in, day out, the phone calls, the, the, all the headache and everything really was put on her shoulders. And we said, we're retiring financially. You know, we're, we're at this point to retire financially. And we're selling the business. You guys will have the first opportunity to buy it if you want. And then, and then from there, you know, we, we lowered the valuation of, of what the business was worth. We worked out a bootstrapping agreement, right? They, they cut us a down payment check and now we get a monthly check for the next eight or so years. Um, but for us, for, for Cammy and I, financially, it would have been a way better move to go to financially to go to one of these other people who had the means to just cut us a check and be done and walk away. Um, but A, we really loved, loved this employee a lot. And we knew that her and her husband were going to take the company to the next level, they had the fire and drive and they had the desire <clears throat> where we had kind of, you know, after about 13-ish years, we're, we're getting burnt out with it. Um, 
And so, you know, when they said, yeah, we're interested, we were full bore in trying to figure out whatever way we could financially to work it out with them. And so now they're six months into owning the company and, and killing it. They've, they're, it's grown, I don't know, 10 or 15% in six months. They're bringing on new clients. They have new, new, some new procedures in place. And now, um, you know, they own, they own the property management company. They bought the real estate brokerage from us. And wow. now they are our property managers. Now they manage our portfolio of all the real estate we have here in Utah still. Um, and, and I couldn't be like more excited and more proud of them. And some people I think might have the mindset of looking at, they, they took the business and they're gonna take it to another level of having that mindset of, oh wait, maybe I could have done that or maybe I could have made more money. Um, but we, we had hit that dollar amount. And for us, for us, we got to the point where another dollar wasn't gonna change our lifestyle. Having more freedom is, is what we wanted. Absolutely. So now at this point, you sold the company and, and now the next step is now, how do you make this money, you know, continue to work for you, right? You can work hard for your money, but when you learn to make your money work hard for you, that's a big difference. And with so many markets of real estate property valuations increasing so high, yeah. it seems like it's more difficult than ever to find you know, good deals. What should, you know, someone who's looking to build a portfolio in 2022 be thinking about, you know, with the markets we're dealing with? Um, I remember in 2012, I had a client come to me and said, hey, I want to, I want to buy real estate. And townhomes at this point were trading for like 180 to $190,000 in the Utah County area. And this new development is coming on the market and they were gonna start their pricing at, at 205,000. And they said, real estate is so overpriced. I'm never gonna make any money in this. This is ridiculous. How can a townhome be worth $200,000? This is the end of the world. The real estate market's gonna crash next week. It just on and on and on and on and on. So, so I think you have to take the long-term approach. It, is it harder to buy real estate in 2022 than it was five years ago? Yes, absolutely. Are, are you going to find another investment though, where you go out and you ask the bank, hey, will you give me a loan? I'm gonna put a little bit of money down and then I'm gonna have somebody else come in and pay off that loan. And then whatever that little buffer is between my payment and what my rent is, I get to keep every single month and put in my pocket. And then at the end of the every year, the IRS is going to say, hey, your property actually depreciated in value. Here's some depreciation for your taxes. And so I'm making money. The IRS is telling me I'm losing money and I have somebody else paying off my bank loan. If there's another investment like that out there, somebody please tell me. So is it hard in 2022? Yes. In five to 10 years, are we gonna look back and say, man, I wish I would've bought more properties in 2022? Who knows? That's the golden question. And, and the real answer is nobody knows. If you would've told me in 2009, hey, don't buy this property because in six months, you're gonna be way upside down in it, I would've never bought it. I would've waited six months to a year and then bought it when the bottom was. But, but the fact is, I'm not worried about these, these mini cyclical changes is more of the long term. I'm in it for the long term. My wife and I financially are retired. 
we, you know, we live in Costa Rica and we surf every day with our kids and I'm still actively buying real estate, right? We have two properties under contract right now. As soon as those two are gonna close, I'm gonna go look for my next deal. So, so is the market high? Maybe, or maybe it is just what the market is. What kind of properties right now are you seeing opportunities with? So, so I think you still can find opportunities in, you know, and, and two, another whole aspect of this that we haven't talked much about is the lending side of things. Okay. And so, you know, the, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines on multifamily is four units or lower. So there's still a lot of opportunity in that multifamily space. Is your cap rate going to be squozing? Yeah, absolutely. Are you going to get that seven, eight, nine cap that we were getting, you know, three to five years ago? No. But can you still find that maybe that three to five cap? Yeah, you can. Um, so I think there's still space in the multifamily area, that duplex, triplex, fourplex area. And, you know, you're going fiveplex and above. Now we're talking about commercial lending and a whole different animal. Um, but, you know, there's still, there's still opportunities in the condos, townhomes range. Um, and then, and then, you know, you mentioned it in the beginning, but this, this Airbnb nightly rental market that is, that is coming, um, is massive. There are a lot of investors who are taking their rental properties off long-term rentals, going in and furnishing them and doing the nightly or monthly rentals and they're killing it there. You know, some of my, uh, friends bought a little single family home in Riverton, 500,000 old crappy, like run down. And they went in, they gutted the entire basement. They added a basement entrance, little put three bedrooms down there, put in some really cute furniture, a cute kitchen, spent maybe 30 or $40,000. And we're averaging $4,000 a month on Airbnb, a little teeny crappy rundown house in Riverton right? They, they put their down payment down, uh, renovated it, and now we're killing it. So there's, there's opportunity out there and there's no shortage of, of people still in 2022 being very successful real estate investors. And odds are 10 years from now, the values will probably be higher. I agree. And you'll think, gosh, I wish I'd have gotten in. I wish yeah. I'd have taken it. So that the key factor, make sure you get a property that can cover your expenses. And if you can do it in a creative way, where you can do an Airbnb situation or student housing. That's where there's a lot of opportunity. And then uh, last last uh, questions here. What about something outside of real estate? Uh, or maybe you know you got syndicates, uh, syndication opportunities. Yeah. What's your thoughts on crypto or, or the stock market? What are your, what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, we, we, knew, we knew retirement for us was coming. So and at that point, you know, three or five years, three to five years ago, we had 95% of our net worth in real estate. So, so that's when we started to create these multiple streams of passive income, right? And so then, so we really tried to say, okay, what are our, what are going to be our four areas of income once we retire? And, and one leg of our retirement table was the passive income from our rental properties. The other leg was debt, right? So doing through, you can either do debt funds, right? There's a ton of these out here, syndications. They'll take your money, group it together with other investors' money and go out and lend it to organizations or businesses trying to grow or real estate developers. And then you'll get whatever percentage that fund is getting. So we started 
um, putting money into these real estate syndications that were debt oriented, um, that we just don't do anything. We get a we get a check every single month and a report on who you know out of all these uh, loans who paid and who didn't. Um, and then the other the other ones were we started uh, looking into equities, just into the stock market, and looking into different ETFs and ETFs that were directed more towards income than growth. So e in income ETFs and growing our monthly dividends through the stock market. Uh, and then we also get the, the, you know, the monthly income from selling our business. Mm -hmm. And then, and then too, you know, this, this crypto, this crypto wave that is coming, I wasn't sold on it completely. I have a lot of friends who were sold on it completely. I was interested enough to get in, to get in, to get a piece of everything that is going on, but not put all my eggs in that basket. Cause do I believe that in, in five years, we're all going to be trading Bitcoin versus cash. I just don't know. I don't know. But I also didn't want to miss this wave if it does happen. So we, we did get a little piece of the crypto market to see what happens with it. But we're not we're not completely sold that, you know, all the financial markets in the world are going to collapse and we should only trust cryptocurrency to throw all of our eggs in that basket. Yeah, a lot of experts are saying maybe 5% of your net worth, yeah. you know, at most maybe 10% if you're aggressive, but, but you're right. I mean, clearly there's a big market cap with some of these uh, currencies. And if some, if you can catch one early on, that's, that's legitimate. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunity uh, there as well. Well, McKay, unbelievable. How, so much value that you've shared with the audience today. How can they serve you? How can they give back to you? How can they help you in any way? It, you know, I, <laughs> I, you want to come down to Costa Rica and go surfing with me? I'd be stoked. Um, but yeah, the, the next step for us, we don't have, we don't have our, our financial goals. Are, we're so blessed and we're so happy with the point we're at financially. And we worked really hard to get there. Our next goals in life are, are helping people with their health and fitness and mental health and everything. So. You know, we, we will be opening a new business in Costa Rica in the little town where we live. It's called Ojachal. Um, and so, so yeah, you can hit us up on Instagram. It's just The Vowels, T-H-E-V-O-W-L-E-S. Connect with us on Instagram. Um, and we, we can't wait to just help people grow uh, themselves health-wise. Get fitter, get healthier eat better foods, get more sleep, you know, help their mental health. And so that's that's what we're really excited about is is come down to Costa Rica with us, enjoy the beautiful jungle, the beautiful sunshine, the beautiful ocean and the waves and eat healthy food and do some fitness with us. Beautiful, man. We're going to have to take you up on that one and, and hook up with you guys, uh, you and Cammie, and, and uh, do some fun stuff. Guys, Costa Rica is amazing. But I think the important thing is a lot of people overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they can do in 10 to 15 years. And to see what you guys have done in the last uh, 13, 14, 15 years is a testament to having that vision, being in it for the long run. And if you do it the right way and you focus and you're willing to put in the work and the effort, the financial freedom is there. The American dream is still real. You can do this. Uh, reach out uh, to McKay. He's very giving on Instagram. 
And again, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.